Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. You coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! Ow! Some things never change, like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on, and Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. Please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. This week on the Garage Beers Podcast, it is episode 52, and in the garage this week, joining the guys is an absolute Cleveland sports icon. He became the voice of the Cleveland Cavaliers. He did that for more than 40 years. He was also the play-by-play broadcaster for the Cleveland Indians for almost 20 years. His name hangs in the banners, in the rafters at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. Joe Tate is going to be on the podcast with us. All that, plus our Garage Beers of the Week. Come on up the driveway, pull out your favorite lawn chair, crack open a cold one, and join us for Garage Beers. All right, and welcome everybody into the Garage Beers podcast. Find us online at The Garage Beers on Twitter, Instagram. Go find us on TikTok, on Facebook, any social media you can imagine except for MySpace. We are on it go find the show there with you as always i'm your host michael keith find me at garage beers mike and my co-hosts over on the east side of cleveland he is the one and only garage beers chad chad meyer what's going on chad hey hi oh man should we make a myspace i mean isn't that making a comeback (laughs) i mean i heard like justin timberlake bought it and like i don't know is trying to revive it should we i mean it's, it's it's probably an untapped social media platform for podcasts right now. I'm telling you. I think it was <laughs> but, tapped uh, and then it was overly oh. tapped and now it's not tapped. It's tapless. Oh, it doesn't well, we even can have tap a tap. Back. So we can tap back in. There we go. <laughs> huh? We can tap back in. Uh, yeah. I don't know guys. How do you feel about JJ Watt signing? I mean, according to Brown's oh. Twitter, everybody he's, he's signed already. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> I think there's a lot. Of, I, listen, I, I would love it. I love the reports like the Browns offer a lot of what J.J. Watt's looking for. Yeah, obviously. They're a playoff yeah. team that are ready to contend. Like, And he'd be starting across from Miles Garrett. Obviously, right. they have things he would be looking for. At the same right. time, 
there's other teams that have things that J.J. Watt would be looking for. You got, <laughs> yeah. you got DeAndre Hopkins out there in Arizona, like, come team up. That's appealing. Right. That's a young right. team on the up. Like, that's appealing. Right. You got the Green Bay Packers. That's his home. And he's always been right. like a Wisconsin guy. He's he's a little Joe Thomasy in that way. Uh, right. Uh, so obviously that's appealing. And then, like I've said on on social media, you got his his two brothers play for the same team about two hours from Cleveland. Right. Now, right. there's been good points made online. I got a buddy that made a point on Twitter that said, "Yeah, but isn't it kind of a brotherly thing to want to go compete with your brothers?" Sure. Sure. But. Sure. It also could be a thing of like, hey, let's get mom and dad three Steelers jerseys. We're all on the same team. What a dream that would be. So, hey, hey, if only if only we had a Wisconsin legend that might have a relationship Hmm. uh, (laughs) with the Watt brothers that might be able to, I don't know, talk to him about Cleveland a little bit. (laughs) I say we pull the whole freaking wool over the Steelers. We sign JJ. And then when TJ's contract comes up, boom. He wants to come to Cleveland to play with JJ. That's it. That's perfect. That's perfect. And, and of course, at that point, TJ will be willing to sign for the veteran minimum. <laughs> yeah. We know. And then, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's exciting. I, I like, I, you know, I like hearing, it, it's amazing to hear good players and star players being attached to the Browns. Uh, but yeah. I'm, until, but Penn can't go to paper for another month. So I'm not going to get, overly hyped until yeah. until something actually happened. Maybe the Browns could sign all the Watt brothers instead of the Steelers and then it would just sound like one of the players from the Key and Peel East West game cuz I'm pretty sure one of their names was like TJ RJ LJ Jefferson split <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> I watched the thing on that the other day. Did you know Jordan Peel made every single one of those names? It's amazing. Keegan Michael Keegan Michael Key had nothing to do with that. Jordan <laughs> Peel, I guess I guess wrote that I guess wrote that skit overnight and, and, and Keegan Michael K it was like, okay, Keegan Michael Key K, whatever the hell. <laughs> well, it takes like, a genius oh. to come up with donkey teeth. Yeah. 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 The Carpatron Duke Marriott. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So I think a better question and let's hold on before we get into this next question, we haven't even introduced the third host oh. of the garage oh. beers podcast. Go find him online at garage oh. beers. Joe, Joey Whalen down in Nashville. What's up, Joe? I'm so honored to be here. <laughs> Are you here? Yeah. I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna say something about space travel, but I feel like I don't want to derail the conversation. Well, no, okay. we'll go back. I want to hear okay. about space travel. Do I, did we like all just sleep on the fact that there is a Super Bowl ad saying, Hey, you can go to space? Yeah. That's a great thing that you just brought up. We sh- we're shelving JJ for a minute, but we're gonna come back to him. That caught my attention too, and I don't know why we haven't thought like, about this. Since. I'm sorry. It's, Sign up here. It's 2021, and we just saw a commercial saying, "Hey, you can go to space." Like, oh, not on this right. planet. All right. All right. I don't know. Okay. That just seems like I don't know if that's like necessarily a a dream come true, but like it's pretty pretty weird. <laughs> I don't know. Definitely not the weirdest thing to happen so far this year. But uh, if you want and you have a shit ton of money, you can go to space now. Listen, no, that's not true. We've already been to space. Airplane 2 already did it. Okay? Fair. fair the sequel. Fair. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> Listen, I all I know is I've been watching the videos of those like SpaceX things coming back down and just horrifically catching on fire and exploding upon landing. So you can leave my name out of that <laughs> yeah. registry. Like I'm oh. 
Yeah, I'm good I, until we can land back on the earth. I'll, I'll skip the first trial run. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, is that an Elon Musk thing? Is that yeah. what's going on? Is that an Elon Musk thing yeah. that we can go to space now? It's really cool because the first test they did, it worked to perfection, right? Like mm-hmm. the thing launched up yeah. there and then the, and then like the, the fuel tanks came back down and landed themselves on like an X perfectly. It was great. <laughs> and I think it's been three in a row now where the fuel tanks come back down and they just hit too hard and just explode. Jesus. Count me okay. out. Count me out on trip number one to space, Elon. Well, I'm, con- I'm convinced Elon Musk is an alien anyway, so. <laughs> and his <laughs> child, XRQ version 2.3. Niner. <laughs> I don't know, Joe. Are you going? No. Hell no. <laughs> but I will gladly watch. When they develop the technology, though, like when it gets better, will, would you go? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's like as safe as flying in an airplane. I will for sure. Yeah, and I have an extra two hundred k laying around. Let's get those dome. Let's get those domes built on the moon or on Mars or whatever. Let's get up there and start living. I'm in. Yeah. Would it be weird? I mean, I don't know. Like it's kind of weird. Like you are now free to move about the cabin. You just unbuckle your seatbelt. You're just floating all over the plane. (laughs) It'd be such a good time. Yeah. It'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, thank you. But yes, uh, I think that was dramatically skimmed over, Joe. Back to your original point. Like, I don't remember social media exploding about that. I don't remember much of anything with that. But yeah, there was a Super Bowl was, commercial yeah. that's like, here, register at www.sendmyasstospace.com and we'll take you. But what? That's an awesome website name. That's a really awesome yeah, website I know, name. I know. That I, know. I just made it up on the we spot. We need to take that. That is a new show website. www.sendmyasstospace.com Backslash garage beers. Backslash garage beers. Yeah. All right. So go back real quick. Now that we've introduced Joe to the audience, uh, uh, let's go back to JJ before we get into our garage beers of the week. So the the the, the question isn't, is J.J. Watt going to sign with Cleveland? Because who the hell knows? The mm-hmm. better question is, what do you think? Do you want J.J. Watt to come to Cleveland? Yes. 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 You'd be, you'd, you would be very naive to, 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 to not want J.J. Watt on the Cleveland Browns. He's 32. Yes. He's been injured a couple of times. Yes. But every year that he hasn't been injured, he's been rated as a, as a, graded, as a top 10 defensive end in the league. So yeah, yeah. When he's in, when he's playing, he makes an impact. I mean, Hey, Jay, I mean, here's, here's the sales pitch for, for if I'm the Browns to JJ, Hey, JJ, uh, you want to come play the weak side of the defense and never get double teamed again. Okay. All right. Here you go. I mean, that's, I mean, that alone is attractive for me if I'm a star defensive end, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's a no brainer for me. Do I want JJ Watt on the, on this team? Yes. I do. And will it happen? I, I have no, I have no, no idea. Joe? It's kind of similar, I feel like, to our Jadavian Clowney argument where it's like, yeah, I'd absolutely love to have him on the team. If we don't get him, I don't know if I'm going to be, like, like super sad about it. You don't know what you don't have, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I think he'd be a fantastic addition. Can you imagine? So you might as well. You might as well get ready for if he – if J.J. signs here, it's like the best signing of the offseason – and if he doesn't sign here, everybody's like, ah, he's over the hill anyways, whatever. I know, but see, that's why I don't like these articles about like, oh, he's very interested reportedly. Because like, it's like, you're just at that expectation that I didn't need to have before. 
Yeah. That's why I don't, that's why I don't like, like, that's why I'm trying not to get too hyped right now. Cause it's just a, it's just a rumor and we still have a month to go before anybody can sign anywhere. Well, the bottom line is even if JJ Watt does sign, if JJ Watt signs here, obviously that would mean the, the end of the end of Olivier Vernon in Cleveland, you know, even yeah. though they, they don't, we don't know that he, they would bring him back anyways, but even if JJ Watt does sign here, um, you still need depth at pass rush. Right. So right. the draft is going to have to focus on pass rush and you're going to have to bring in some depth pass rushers because again, TJ Watt has had a couple injury issues, even though, you know, I'm not going to sit here and call him injury prone or whatever, but he's had some injury issues. JJ. <laughs> yeah. Not TJ. Jesus. JJ Watt has had some injury issues. Miles Garrett uh, doesn't necessarily generally get through a full season without missing a game here or there uh, or a couple games. Uh, so you need depth. You need people that are going to come in. Just bringing JJ Watt in and pairing him with Miles Garrett isn't going to be isn't going to do it. You got to have the other pieces around it. So I'm with you though, Chad. Of course, my answer is yes. Of course, if he's healthy and he comes in, you know, it's it was the same thing with Jadavian Clowney, and that turned out to be okay that he didn't sign here. But Jadavian's kind of a he's proven to have some uh, questionable uh, things when it comes to just the willingness to compete and play. JJ doesn't yeah. have that when he's on the field, yeah. he's there to compete and play. It would be an awesome ad, but if they sign him awesome, if they don't, there's other things they're going to be able to do to improve the team. So it's, it's not like, Oh, we need this. Yeah. And people want, and people want to point out like said, he only had five sacks last year. Well, do you, I mean, did, did you see the defense that he was on? I mean, <laughs> did you, did Ugh. you see the defense he was on? But so I, I don't know, but I guess my other thing is my other question that I'd be curious is if you're going to sign JJ Watt, it's probably going to be at a pretty steep price. I mean, not overly steep, but that that the contract is one thing I'll be willing to look for. You're most likely going to have to give up, like uh, get, get rid of somebody. So I'd be I, I, if we if we do sign him, I'd be curious to see who they get rid of. Well, it'd be interesting because it certainly wouldn't. I, I don't think it'd be he's. I don't think JJ signing any more long term deals. No, like no. you're not bringing JJ in on a five year contract. No. Uh, so uh, yeah, I I, I don't. I don't think you have to lose anybody of consequence uh, mm-hmm. to sign JJ Watt. I think you do it as a, as a shorter, maybe one or two year deal and, and let the chips fall yeah. where they might, but you know, we'll see what happens uh, again. If he signs here, it would be awesome. If he doesn't sign here, it doesn't break the off season. There are still players available that are going to make this team better. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and yeah. that's, that's the way Browns fans should look at it. And if he doesn't sign here, it doesn't mean he's an over, like an over the hill hack. He's still a good football player and he can still be dominant. He's just going to do it somewhere yeah. else. And that's okay. Uh, so should be interesting to watch uh, as the Browns off season. Uh, we're, what is it? You say, Chad, like a month away from really getting into uh, seeing who signs, uh, who signs yeah. where, what free agents agree where, uh, and then you get into yeah. and all that. So we got all that coming up. Uh, but this episode, that's about all we're going to talk about the Browns. St. Paddy's Day. St. Paddy's Day is when you can awesome. teams can start signing free agents. Sweet. So this episode isn't going to feature the Browns. It's going to feature somebody that has uh, been in sports, boys. This is going to be so much fun. Uh, been in sports <laughs> for uh, a better part of or, or over 50 years at this point. Uh, as the voice of the Cavaliers and of the Cleveland Indians for a long time. We're going to get into all of that. We got Joe Tate coming up. But before we get to Joe Tate, we've got to do our very favorite segment of the week. It is our Garage Beers of the Week segment, and we got our beers lined up and ready to go. So to start things off, let's kick it over to the east side. Chad Meyer, what are you drinking for your Garage Beer of the Week this week? 
It is a fry PA, guys. <laughs> it's it's uh, the beer from made uh, in conjunction with sibling, sibling Revelry Brewery by one of our favorite guests on the show, uh, Channing Fry. So he, he went to Sibling Revelry and said, hey, listen, I want to make a one-off and, and help out charity. And, uh, you know, so we've had this beer on the show before. Uh, it, it is it is uh, one of my one of my uh, least not liked IPAs, <laughs> <laughs> least not liked IPAs. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it's good. And it's for a good cause, too. So cheers, Channing and, and you guys. Cheers, buddy. All right, Joe down in Nashville. What do you got for your garage beer of the week this week? I have from Honky Tonk Brewing Company. The Honky Tonk. Uh, a beer that's aptly named West Coast IPA. Nothing cool. really fancy in the name, just okay. right Super to the point. That is exciting. the actual like, name. There's no like, <laughs> no like, I don't know, Dragon West Coast IPA. It's just West Coast IPA. It's what you get. It's just like masthead. They just have IPA. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. It's a fantastic West Coast IPA. So I, I see why they stuck with the name. Um, I don't really have any like flavor notes. It's delicious. I could drink like 20 of these. Uh, brewery is really cool. Used to live by it. Um, and it's a good beer. Awesome. Before I get to my Joe, uh, you know, there's winter weather going on everywhere. Nashville, man. Uh, uh, ice storms and yes. videos of cars just sliding around. I love my favorite <laughs> video from all this. Cause there's been some scary videos. That one video of like the Fort Worth highway, where trucks were just plowing into cars at like 50 yeah. miles an hour. That was horrific and scary. Uh, my favorite video comes from Nashville from a <laughs> nice neighborhood where houses are kind of built up on a hill and a pickup truck. Billy Jean? Is it Billy Jean? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> a pickup truck. I don't even know what you're talking about. A pickup truck just backs out of its driveway. <laughs> and before it can like turn to go anywhere, it just starts sliding sideways down the hill. Just like all <laughs> the way down the hill. Completely sideways <laughs> down the street. It wasn't yeah. scary. He, he never got going real fast, uh, which was good, but he just slid all the way down the street kind of slowly. That's my favorite of the videos. Yeah, we uh, we actually kind of live at the bottom of one of those hills, and uh, we see cars like trying to go up just to get to the main road. and They can't get enough speed to get to the top, so they just kind of like hang and then like, like leaf back down, back and forth, <laughs> and then find another way out. I don't know. We've been trapped here since Monday. Uh, yeah. and at the time of our taping here, we're supposed to get another four inches tonight, which Whoa. Whoa. about a half, a, no, I think it's like a quarter inch of ice, but the snow's not the problem. It's the ice. Like we literally cannot get out right now. It's very weird. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we're just hoping our power stays on. That's kind of like the, uh, fingers crossed right now. <laughs> yeah. For real. All right. We'll yeah. stay safe. Oh, go ahead. Jeff. The, video, the video I'm talking about is, uh, some guy some guy tweeted out he said, he said it's kind of like the similar what the video you just said mike it was it's a pickup truck sliding sideways down a hill in a, on a residential street and he and he just said i added billy jean to a pickup truck sliding down the street because <laughs> why not <laughs> i wonder if it's it might be the same video but he just added bill i didn't see the billy jean part but i love it <laughs> yeah all right so Joe's got the honky tonk. Uh, Chad brought back Channing Fries for IPA. I'm going to go with a uh, Columbus brewery, uh, the North High Brewing Company, which I think I've had another one of these on here before. I think I had one yeah. maybe when we did one of the hockey episodes. Anyways. Jody, she Jody Shelley had it too. Yes, that's right. Uh, so I found in uh, just a Heinen's around here, I found this beer and it looks 
interesting. It's an imperial IPA, so it's got that nice kick to it that I like. Uh, 8.8 ABV, and it's called Stardust to Stardust Imperial IPA. Uh, it is doesn't have any description on the can, but it's got the lettering of Star Wars. So I'm guessing nice. Stardust oh, to cool. Stardust means that, and I'm going to give it a try that's right cool. about now. Oh, what a pop. Oh, I could drink several of these. Well, if I drink several of these, I'm going to not be talking real well, but that is really, really good. That's a good, it's kind of a West Coast, more West Coast style. Really good IPA. That's the North High Stardust to Stardust Imperial IPA. So those are our garage beers of the week. Send us your garage beers that you are drinking this week. Let us know what's good, what's new, what you haven't had before that you really like, and give us some suggestions to have on the show. We're always looking for those. Uh, But to you guys on the show here, cheers. And to you, the listener, cheers as well. And now we're really excited. We're going to waste no more time as we get in to our interview with the legendary Joe Tate. All right. So now we are excited. Cleveland, here in Cleveland, we're lucky. We've had some some legendary and beloved sports broadcasters, uh, but none more so than the gentleman we have on tonight. Uh, Tonight's special guest spent the majority of 40 years as the radio voice of the Cavaliers, uh, and his name now hangs in the rafters amongst other Cavalier legends. He also spent a good part of 15 years as the voice of the Cleveland Indians. He's been awarded the prestigious Kurt Gowdy Media Award by the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, and he's a He's truly a guest, even though I just gave him an introduction that needs no introduction. We're really excited to have on the legendary Joe Tate. Joe, welcome to the Garage Beers podcast. Thank you very much. Well, it is awesome to have you on. Uh, If you're like all of us, especially here uh, in the middle, if you're listening to this in the middle of Cavaliers basketball season, all you got to do is hear Joe for one second, and it just throws you back into, into listening to him on the radio. It's really good to hear your voice again, Joe. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What's going to happen with this august group I'm looking at? What was that? And what's going to happen with this august group that I'm looking at? <laughs> we're, I think we're just, we're, uh, our plan is just to have a, uh, a good time. We may not be the, uh, the best looking of groups, right. uh, but, <laughs> but right. we, we like to have a good time on the podcast. Okay. I, I debated back and I debated back and forth about putting my video on Joe. So he didn't have to look at me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, uh, I guess just to start 10 years later, uh, and, and it's still odd to, to me, it's still every time I turn the radio on, and we hear our good buddy, Tim Alcorn, uh, who's been on with us a couple times, uh, it, it's still odd to not hear Joe Tate on the sound waves for the Cavaliers. Uh, you, have a good, you have a great relationship with Tim. Uh, it's actually, you know, I think it's Tim that reached out to you on our behalf, which was awesome of Mr. Alcorn. Uh, but when you heard that Tim was taking that role, and he was going to sit in the perch, the Joe Tate perch, named after you. Uh, what kind of words of wisdom did you pass along to him when he was announced as the new radio voice of the Cavaliers? I don't think he needed any real words of wisdom because he had spent 27 years uh, with WEOL and had broadcast a multitude of uh, sporting events, basketball, football, and whatever. And I had uh, had the pleasure to work with him on more than one occasion. So I knew that he was a seasoned veteran and that he would slip right into uh, the role that he now has with the Cavaliers. So, yeah, he has performed just as I knew he would. And can you imagine, could you imagine having to do, you know, as somebody who did it for as long as you did it, could you imagine having to do it the way they're doing it now, where 
Tim is is fortunate to be able to call the games in Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. But then when the team goes on the road, he's basically just broadcasting a game on TV. That seems to be the coming attraction for all announcers in all of the sports. I know the Indians didn't travel their guy, uh, their guys last year, and uh, uh, Jim, uh, the football guy for the Browns, he did home games all the time. So I think Chad left. <laughs> oh, no, Chad will be back. I'm, I'm, I'm back. I'm back. I'm sorry. <laughs> Chad will be back. He didn't just leave. <laughs> he didn't just leave the podcast. You bored him. <laughs> no, 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 no. Absolutely I'm coming back. not. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I promise. You know, it's 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 an interesting thing. One of the things I always thought was interesting, Joe, was you made it really well known. Uh, and you were kind of like this throughout your whole career. When you ended your time with the Cavaliers, you made it pretty well known that you were cutting things off. You were kind of going to disconnect from the NBA in, in a way that you've kind of disconnected, like you've, you've talked about publicly from the Indians after your time there. Uh, uh, did, you, did, you, uh, did you find an urge to, to start listening a little bit again after Tim joined the Cavaliers, or you still find it pretty easy to stay disconnected? I could, I could answer positively to both those. Uh, yeah, I, I don't listen to the games and watch the games, but uh, occasionally I will dial up to see how Tim is doing, and then if I hear something that you know catches my mind, either in a positive or a negative way, I'll call him and we'll talk about it. <laughs> you know, if I have I have a, an interest in seeing Tim Alcorn do a good job, and uh, he is uh, he's doing just that a good job. And under situations that uh, I'm glad I didn't have to deal with, because uh, basically what you end up doing is broadcasting a game through the eyes of somebody else who's running that TV camera in whatever venue the game is being played. And that's tough because there are a lot of times when I am sure he doesn't really get all of the information that he might be able to get had he been sitting right at the scene of the crime. But uh, it's, uh, you know, he's doing the best he could possibly do under the circumstances. And I think I'd say that probably for most of the guys in yes. the NBA. Yeah, so let's throw it back because we just, we're going to hit on some highlights with you. We, you know, uh, you've seen so much uh, throughout the course of, of what was an incredible career. Uh, but now we're here in Cavaliers season, and we're not going to talk about Cavaliers this year, uh, but we're going to talk about your time. Uh, and that time started all the way back in 1970 uh, with the inaugural Cavaliers season, uh, taking over the broadcasting role. Uh, uh, you had worked a little bit uh, for uh, some NBA teams before you started with the Cavaliers uh, for a couple of years, but did the element of not having, you know, you look at what Tim, Tim goes in, and he takes over a role that John Michael had. And before that, it was the role you had. Um, and, and there was so much organization and, and predecessors and structure there. When you took over for the Cavaliers, you were the guy. There was no Cavaliers announcer before Joe Tate. Uh, does that allow you a little more creativity as how you're going to take on that role? Do you, do you feel any of the other pressures uh, from having to step into somebody else's shoes? I just went ahead and did the games as I, I had been working uh, – in Terre Haute, Indiana, before I came to Cleveland. And uh, so I continued to do the games the way I would have done them had they been played in Terre Haute, Indiana. And uh, 
<laughs> Nick Maletti, the man who owned the basketball team and who hired me for the job, uh, he just said, hey, remember, it's it's a family situation. So, <laughs> you know, make it fun. But keep in mind that you're talking to youngsters and oldsters at the same time. And that was the only the only uh, direction he ever gave me in all the years I worked for him. Oh, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, so uh, your first era, it's the Bill Fitch era. You're in the Cleveland arena, which most people don't even remember the Cleveland arena. I know I, you know, I never was in the Cleveland arena. Uh, uh, you had some, there were some rough stretches of basketball there uh, at the beginning, uh, those first few years. Uh, but, you know, for you, the team continued to improve. You know, you added guys, you had Bingo Smith, you had guys like Austin Carr and Jim Jones and Campy Russell, which has got to be kind of fun for you to look back. Did you ever have an inkling that those guys were going to be in the broadcasting world back in the days where they were playing? No, in fact, uh, for instance, Austin Carr uh, was a, an outstanding ball player, and had he not suffered a number of injuries, he probably would have gone on to even greater things than he did. But the first time, he, I think he'd had about a 35-point ball game, so I wanted to interview him for my halftime the next night. And uh, so I sat him down. I, I remember it was in the locker room up at Detroit at Cobo Arena. And I asked him a question, and I got one word for an answer. <laughs> I talked to him about something else. I got one word, and it was, yes, sir, no, uh-huh, right. So it took me, you know, of the eight minutes I had uh, designed for the interview, seven and a half for me in 30 seconds with AC. Well, oh, I, didn't no. talk to, I didn't talk to him again that season because I didn't need that aggravation. But he, early in the second campaign that he was with the Cavs, he had a big ball game, and I realized I'm going to have to talk to him again. So I sat him down and uh, turned on the mic, asked him a question, and he went six minutes. And to this day, he's never been able to explain to me what the heck happened between year one and year two in terms of his verbosity because he just cranked it up. And I asked two questions and I got seven minutes of answers. And uh, I was dumbfounded that AC had learned to speak as well as he did. Well, that's a little crazy. (laughs) Well, Joe, you know, you, you talked about some of the team, some of the players that we added. Uh, you know, one of those players, obviously, it was also World Be Free. You, um, you, you know, you just talked about this on HQ with Cavs HQ with him. But for those that might not have heard it, give us an insight as just to how special that relationship was between you and him. Well, for one thing, the Cavaliers, when World Be Free showed up, were coming out of the Ted Stepien uh, reign of terror. And uh, it was, uh, well, it was such uh, such that, you began to wonder whether or not the team was going to survive, uh, whether or not uh, somebody might come in by the club and take it out of town. Uh, but uh, World Be Free showed up, and very early on, people realized he was fun to watch. And, uh, you know, it was a thing that if he didn't get 40, the team wasn't going to win. But uh, it was still exciting to watch him play. And I don't know what he was like in other venues with other teams. I, I have no idea. I don't want to know. It doesn't make any difference. In Cleveland, he was 
just totally involved with the fans. I tell this, I didn't tell the story on Cavs HQ, but uh, the other one other time I ran into him out at, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the shopping center. They just, I, I haven't been back, but they have redone it there in Parma. Well, anyway, Parmatown, maybe that's what it is. I ran into him. He was coming into the store as I was going out and exchanged brief pleasantries. And with that, a man and about a, oh, I guess the kid be about seven, eight years old, ran up to World and, oh, World, you're wonderful, blah, blah, blah. And uh, could we have a picture with you? And uh, World said, sure. And then the man realized he didn't have his camera. So he said, well, can I leave my son here with you guys and I'll go get the camera? <laughs> and World says, sure. And the guy goes off, it was raining. He goes off at a run to get his camera and World just turned to the little boy and handled him like he was his son. It was beautiful to see World talking to this kid and the kid was obviously in seventh heaven and World just filled that whole time period while the dad was out in the parking lot somewhere looking for a camera and then came back in and took the picture. And uh, boy, you talk about a, a fan for life. That was it. Uh, and that's the kind of guy World was when he was here. And I don't yeah. care what he was like in other venues, but I used to get into arguments with Wayne Embry. And I don't think I had more than one argument with Wayne because usually he and I were on the same wavelength in terms of what he was doing. But that was one thing. He uh, had evidently heard bad things about what World had been in other franchises. And uh, therefore he was not hot to trot to get him up there into the rafters. And I have always said, and will say as long as anybody asks, World Be Free should have his number retired and up in the rafters because he saved the franchise. You know, there was a movie made, uh, The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh or something like that years ago. I think Julius Irving was in the movie. And uh, World Be Free was a movie unto himself. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind, World Be Free saved the Cavalier franchise in the four years he played here. I don't know what's more surprising. An era where you would just leave your kid with people uh, and say, let me go grab my camera. Or an era, uh, there's a lot of people that are going to listen to this that can't even imagine that there was an era that you just didn't have a camera on you at all times. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And you're looking at a guy who has no camera within range. of. <laughs> uh, so if I wanted to take a picture of you guys, I'd be out of luck. Oh, well, so, good news for you. Most cameras don't survive pictures of us. So that is perfectly okay. <laughs> I can understand that. Yes. Uh, so you were a part of, whether it was the Cavaliers or the Indians, you were just a part of a lot of, obviously with the Cavaliers, you were from 70 to your time of retirement, you were a part of every first that ever happened with the Cavaliers. And while it was a tough stretch, the very beginning, like it is for any expansion team, uh, you were a part of the first playoff appearance and the first playoff appearance to this day outside of what happened in 2016 for the Cavaliers is still one of the most memorable playoff appearances in Cavaliers franchise history. That happened in 75, 76. And that's the year of the miracle at Richfield. 
what was, you know, as a broadcaster, you're so ingrained in the team, you know, you're not out there playing, but you're spending every minute of work of your job following along with that team. And so uh, when they finally broke through and had that season, you know, what was that? Is that still a real vivid memory for you? Do you remember what the feelings were like then? Oh, it is me uh, for me. Yes, definitely. And, and even more so because the year before that, we had set an NBA record for single game uh, attendance when the Cavs played the Knicks coming down the stretch and 20,000 plus showed up at the Coliseum. Yeah. And uh, the Cavs won the game and all. Then we went to Omaha to play the Kansas City Omaha Kings. That afternoon, the Knicks played Buffalo and we played Omaha. And if the Knicks beat Buffalo, we were going to make the playoffs because if we'd have the better record than uh, Buffalo. Well, the Knicks, we watched the first game because we were the late game. So we watched that Knicks-Buffalo game, and the Knicks looked like they'd been sleepwalking for a week and a half because they just came out and just lottied out their way, and the Buffalo came out and beat them. Now we have to beat Kansas City Omaha to make the playoffs. And it came down to the final shot. We're down by a point. And uh, Pitch called timeout. And he designed two or three possible plays. The one thing he did not want is to have Freddie Foster shoot the ball. Freddie, <laughs> Foster, Freddie was a tough defender, but Fred did not shoot the ball particularly well. And... Uh, Sure enough, the ball got into Freddie's hands and Freddie decided to launch one from out front. And uh, Ronnie B. Hagan slapped it right back in his face. And that was, the, that was not only the end of the game, it was the end of our playoff drive. And we missed the playoffs by half a game. So that, oh, no. you know, we figured, well, we'll come back and kill him next year. And uh, Freddie was no longer with us. So we had a shot and uh, we got off to a terrible start. And uh, that's when they made the trade with Chicago and brought Nate Thurman in. And uh, Thurman turned out to be the catalyst for that particular ball club. I mean, I could do hours on end about Nate Thurman because not only he was down to the point where he could play about 10, 12 minutes a night and his knees would be unable to go any further yeah. wow. 10 or 12 minutes that he played were awesome he'd block shots he'd defend he'd score and uh, it got to the point where when he stood up late in the first half or late in the game and peeled off his warm-ups the crowd was nuts by the time he got to the scorer's table because they knew Thurman was coming into the ball game it was uh it was great drama. And uh, Thurman not only did that on the floor, but he was a kind of a guy. We got stuck in Chicago during an airline strike and uh, couldn't get back from Chicago to Cleveland to play New Orleans. But they put us over in the Butler Aviation Building for the day while we uh, tried to get a Wright Airlines plane ready to come over and pick us up. And, uh, of course, the players were gross and about the fact they got to sit 
over in this Butler Aviation Building, and there weren't even any, <laughs> any uh, machines with pop and candy in them. And, and Thurman went around to each guy and talked to each one of them there to get him refocused on when we get out of here, you know, this is a big, big ball game we got coming up. Think about the ball game. Don't think about this. This we have no control over. And they finally, they got us an airplane. I don't know if you guys, you guys, ah, look at you, you don't remember Wright Airlines, but Wright Airlines used to fly between Cleveland and Detroit on uh, Monday through Saturday. And uh, we used them for charters when we'd fly to Buffalo, Indianapolis, Chicago, Milwaukee, because you didn't have to refuel. If you want any further, I can remember one time on, on a Wright airliner during the baseball season when the Indians were using Wright Airlines, we had to stop and refuel at Burke Lakefront Airport at two o'clock in the morning on our way from New York to Milwaukee. And it was an interesting feeling <laughs> standing on the tarmac, looking up a terminal tower and knowing you're nowhere near the end of this, uh, the end of this trip. So uh, anyway, Wright Airlines showed up. We climb on the airplane. And I remember Fitch stood up at the front of the plane, which was hard because it was one of those DC-9s that weren't level. You know, yeah. the front end of the plane was down lower than the front end of the plane. So Pitch was standing up there and he told the guys that when we land, nobody stops for anything. Not to go to the John, not to get a newspaper, nothing. You get off this plane and into your cars and out to the Coliseum immediately. And we landed. The, on, what's that? Oh, I was saying, get that. He's like, get the hell out of here. That's right. Yeah. We landed about 945. The New Orleans Jazz had been there warming up several times. There was a crowd that still was better than 10,000 people at 1045 at night when we tipped off. And uh, we just killed New Orleans. I, I mean, beat them by 20, 25 points. And uh, it, that was, there were games like that, moments like that, that you began to realize this this was something special and uh, you know, went all the way through and had Jim Jones not broken his foot in the practice time between Washington and Boston. We would have won it all. There's no two ways about it. We had beaten Boston four out of six in the regular season. And we had taken Phoenix, the team they played for the title. We had taken Phoenix both ends of our meetings with them. And uh, I knew we were headed for a championship, but Jones broke his foot. That meant Thurman had to start playing 30, 35 minutes a night. And when he wasn't playing, then Luke Woody would come in. Now, Luke was a great guy and a hard worker, but he was no Nate Thurman, and he certainly was no Jim Jones. So, therefore, we lost in six games to the Celtics. But all things considered, it was a miracle. The whole year was miraculous. You know, it makes it even more for, for a lot of people that don't that ever watch Nate Thurman play that don't know about name, Nate Thurman. What you just said makes makes it incredible that his name hangs from the rafters, uh, that his number hangs up there. It, this is a guy that made that big of an impact and he could only play about 10 to 12 minutes a game. Yeah, he made an impact in a relatively short period of time because the very next season, 
he went down with an injury. I believe it was in Houston. And uh, I remember Bill came out of the locker room. And as he walked across to the Cavs bench, he passed by me. And he just looked at me and he said, we just ended a career. Oh. And uh, Thurman never was able to come back from that knee injury. So here's, you know, again, uh, you talk about that miracle Richfield team. It's it's after years of the Cavs building, right? And, and it was a steady adding players here or there, building up from an expansion team into a playoff team. Uh, and, and it had to feel around the town. You had to feel it as the broadcaster that, okay, we're building something special here. We're one injury away. Uh, like you just said, if Jim Jones doesn't get hurt, we're one injury away. Uh, but that wasn't the case. And uh, the Cavaliers would then very sparingly see a winning record, let alone the playoffs, again until the late 80s. Uh, they wouldn't even make it out of the first round again until the early 90s. Uh, so uh, what's the biggest culprit there? You know, I think we've seen that too much in Cleveland and all of our sports teams where you have a great rise of a team and then the next year they just don't come back and, and, and match that. What was the biggest culprit for that early Cavaliers team? Well, I don't know whether it was just a here's a team that got together and the whole the whole thing was right for that particular moment in time and that they could not duplicate it. Thurman went down, so we didn't have that uh, on our side. And then, you know, I think teams played it played better against us because we were one of the better teams in the league. And uh there were a lot of little things that happened behind the scenes that contributed to uh, a level of play that was not quite as good as it was in the miracle year. So this is where I have a little sidebar in here because during this time between the miracle year and then the fond years that we all remember of the Mike Price, Mark Price, Brad Doherty, Hot Rod, that whole team, uh, during that whole time, you were also involved with the Cleveland Indians, and there were some exciting things going on with the Indians. There wasn't a lot of winning going on with the Indians. Uh, there wasn't a lot of team success, but there was a lot of exciting things going on. Uh, again, not a ton of winning seasons, four to be exact, and most of those were really close to 500, but they were winning seasons. Uh, but there were some exciting moments in there that you were a part of as a broadcaster. As an Indians broadcaster, you were a part of Frank Robinson being named the first uh, the first. Uh, black manager in Major League Baseball history. Uh, you called not one but two no-hitters, one being Dennis Eckersley's, one being uh, Lenny Barker's perfect game, uh, which is pretty cool because, as we Indians fans know, there has not been one perfect game or no-hitter in Indians history since Len Barker uh, through his in 1981. Uh, uh, so just talk about, you know, uh, a couple of those special moments with the Indians and some of your fond your fond memories of calling Indians baseball. Well, you missed a no hitter. Dick Bosman threw a no hitter for the Indians against the Oakland A's back in '74, and then of course Lenny Barker and Dennis Eckersley threw the other two. So I had three no hitters, three in a span of time which included, I think we were maybe one or two games over 500 a couple of times, but. Uh, Nobody remembers those years except for the <laughs> no-hitters. And even for Bosman's no-hitter, you forgot. So, I You mean, know, I actually I marked it down that it was before you, so that was my mistake on my notes. I, I, I didn't know if you were there yet or not, but that's still yeah. – that's very cool you got to do three. 
I remember I gave Bosman a tape of that no-hitter, and uh, twice he contacted me and said he'd worn out the tape, and uh, he wanted to know how to get another copy. So I got a new copy and sent it off to him. Yeah, he, uh, he cherished that moment. And uh, the thing I remember is we are playing the Oakland A's, who were the defending champs. Sure. And uh, Bosman no-hits them. So after the ball game, the reporters go into the Oakland locker room, and there was a player on that team named Bill North who always had something to say about anything and everything. So they congregate around North, and they said, well, how does it feel to get no hit by the Cleveland Indians? And he just laughed, and he said, ah, nothing, nothing. It's just just like getting beat 10 to 9. The very next day, we're playing an afternoon game, and John Ellis comes up in the ninth inning, singles, two runs home, Indians win 10 to 9. Yes. Reporters back into the locker room. Around North, and of course, one of the guys says, "Well, Bill, now that you've seen them both, what's more impressive: getting no hit or getting beat ten to nine?" And then Bill said things like, "I guess they couldn't print." But uh, oh, that was that was one of those things. We we had some we had some good times working with Herb Score was a real treat because Herb Score knew baseball better than anybody I've ever met. In fact, I'd always tell him, boy, if I ever owned a base, baseball team, I'd hire you as a general manager because you know more about the game than most general managers that I've run into. And uh, we had a lot of fun working together. Now, in a little bit more of an infamous <laughs> note here, Joe, you know, in 1987 comes along, you've got guys like Corey Snyder and Joe Carter on the front of Sports Illustrated. You know, the Indians are projected to win uh, the World Series in 1987 by Sports Illustrated. Then they go on to go ahead and lose 101 games. Right. What went wrong that season? What happened? I don't know. I left. <laughs> I up, I'm out I of here. Up doing two games. Uh, I've gone to the camps full time, and uh, they started the Sports Channel that year, and they were using. Rick Manning, Rick Manning was the color guy, but they were bringing in announcers, all the Cleveland guys, guys from Youngstown, guys from Columbus, guys from Toledo, and they were trying out different play-by-play guys to see whom they could get for the following season when they would be doing the full schedule. And they ended up with two games, the end of their season, out in Seattle midweek, and they had nobody to go out there and do the games. They called me and asked me if I'd come back and do those two games. So I got permission from the powers to be with the Cavs and flew out to Seattle. And uh, Manning and I did the two games together. And I told him at the time, I said, well, last week of the season, two ball clubs going nowhere. Nobody cares. That's my kind of broadcast. And uh, we had, I remember Manning had terrible, terrible grammar. Oh, he could butcher the language, something fierce. And I was telling him, you've got to, you've got to, you know, speak the King's English 
because people are going to get all over you. They won't pay any attention to what you're saying. It's going to be how you're saying it that's going to be the thing they remember most about Manny. So I wrote down several things that he said during the first night we were together. And then after the game, we went out and got something to eat. And I got my list. And I said, oh, you got to stop saying this. And I said, and in fact, I'm going to tell you something. The next time I hear you say it tomorrow night on our second broadcast, I'm going to give you the elbow. And I said, just, uh, you know, get ready for it if you if you come up with stuff like this. So the next night he came out and he obviously was working hard to say it the right way. And then in the fourth inning, he made a boo-boo. And I got the arm up like this and drilled him. But he saw it coming and he lurched back on his stool. We were sitting in stools up there in uh, Seattle. He lurched back in his stool and went off the stool and on the floor. So here's Manning flat on the floor. He's laughing. I'm laughing. And two batters went by and nobody ever heard anything except the two of us absolutely in convulsions laughing about Manning sitting on the floor. So, but nobody cared. I don't think anybody listens anyway, so. Oh, God. Yeah, well, Manning turned out to be a, a good color guy. Uh, I think he, he offers something to the telecast. I watch them on a regular basis, and I, I think he does a good job. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's got to be amazing. You know, we, we talked about when you, were, when you were calling players, Jim Jones and Campy Russell and Austin Carr, and now to watch them on the broadcast side. But, uh, you know, here's Rick Manning uh, 30 years later. Uh, still, still getting after it. Still doing a great job with his Indians broadcast. So uh, it's amazing. It's amazing the people you've seen come through and and, and do. You know, uh, it's your story's great with the grammar for Rick Manning, but it seems like he's got it right. He seems like he's handled English much better as of late. Yes, <laughs> fewer bruises in the rib cage. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> he, he feel he touches his ribs every time he he, he says something wrong. Yeah, he probably gets a, probably gets a twinge once in a while. Yeah, just the, from the good old days. Yeah, they call that tape ribs. Yeah, tape ribs. I'm really surprised. I'm really surprised that you guys did not mention something else that happened during my time with the Indians. Oh, no. The infamous oh. Beer Night Riot. Uh-huh. Oh, that's it. <laughs> that was a great, if, that was a great decision. To have you that. guys are old enough to have been one of the streakers that went across the outfield. They started out in the first inning with one streaker, two streakers. By the fifth or sixth inning, we had 10 naked idiots running across. <laughs> and... Of course, you might know that the team in town was the Texas Rangers. Yeah. Yeah. Managed by Billy Martin, who was always looking to fight anyway. Yep. And uh, came the ninth inning. Now things are really out of hand. Uh, the ushers are all hiding from from view, and the people that were there to watch the game have packed up and gone home because it's just streakers and drunks and fights and. Well, Jeff Burrows is playing right field for the Rangers, and some clown comes out of the stands, grabs Burrows' hat, and starts to run with it, slips and falls. 
the old stadium was, was so highly crowned that if you stood in the third base dugout, you couldn't see anybody just standing out in the deep right field. And Billy Martin saw his right fielder turn and start to chase this guy and then go down because he slipped in the mud out there. Well, that was all Billy Martin needed. Oh, no. Grabbed a fungo bat and let's go, guys. The whole Texas ball club came roaring out of the third base dugout, got out in the right field, and they suddenly found themselves surrounded Mm -hmm. by drunks and idiots who were swinging chains and pieces of chairs and knives and everything else. And then the Indians, Kenny Aspromani, had to get his ball club out of the first base dugout and out there to help the Rangers fight their way out of the ambush they ran into once they got into right field. Tommy Hilgador, I remember Tommy Hilgador was a relief pitcher for us. Somebody threw a chair out of the upper deck and hit him right on the head, split his skull open. And uh, the two teams actually fought their way back into the first base dugout and up the walkway and into the locker room where they hid out behind locked doors while, you know, the idiocy continued. And uh, those who were in charge of the Indians at the time all bailed out. They weren't around at the end. Uh, The only reason the cops showed up was guys who were out on their patrols heard the broadcast and heard me say on the air, we got a riot going on down here at the stadium. And so they sent some squad cars down oh there to kind of quell the quell the mob. But uh, the, the home the home plate umpire that night was Nestor Shylock, who was one of the greats. He the Indians had been trailing five to nothing and had scored five runs in the ninth inning and tied the game at five and they had the bases loaded. And all he needed was one more guy to score and the Indians win the comeback. And they but could have got out of there. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, all hell broke loose. And uh, so Nestor Shylock said, I stood at home plate and waited in hopes that things would calm down and we'd get one more batter in there and end the ball game. But he said, while I'm standing there, I feel something on the back of my left foot. And he says, I turned around and looked down. He said, there was a hunting knife sticking in the ground right behind my left foot. Oh. And he said, oh. at that point, it was, that's it, game, set, match, we're out of here. And uh, they forfeited the game. Wow. You know, so wow. I think we all know we all know so much about the aftermath of that game and just the craziness and the riots and the people. Did you have any inkling going into that game that it was going to be a, just a terrible idea, though? Well, yeah, the, the the first streaker we saw in the first inning indicated we were headed to see one, you're going to see 10. Yeah. You know, the more they drink, the worse it gets. And the cat, because they had a streaker, the very first half inning, there he goes. Why you knew there were more coming and you knew it was going to get out of hand. So this, this was just tailor made for disaster. I mean, I've been to penny beer night in college but I, I would, <laughs> and that's a bad idea in itself. But man, you put people at a professional <laughs> sporting event with with as cheap a beer as they offer. Man, that, that's that's crazy. That was crazy stories, Joe. <laughs> yeah, the people the people who had come to see the ball game they were gone. 
they, I can remember looking down out of the broadcast booth and seeing families kind of gather together and, and get out of the stands as early as the sixth inning because it was getting wilder and wilder and wilder. And uh, finally, it just got totally out of hand in the ninth inning. Yeah, that's uh, I, you know, I didn't even write it down. I figure you probably had over talked that, but what a, what a great story from your perspective on that night. Uh, but 1987 comes, your time with the Indians uh, ends, uh, and you just go full time with the Cavaliers, and that was good timing because that is that is right in the heyday of what until a certain number 23 joined the team uh, was the most successful time in the history of the Cavaliers uh, when they brought in just an incredible amount of talent, uh, whether it's Mark Price or Brad Doherty or Craig Elo or Hot Rod Williams, Larry Nance, uh, even uh, you could talk about Ron Harper and, and all these, Steve Kerr, the manager of the Warriors now, uh, led by Lenny Wilkins. Um, I mean, that was a special team. That's, you know, some of us on this podcast, that's some of our first memories of watching the Cavaliers and, and how exciting that was. Uh, but it just so happened that they decided to get good here in Cleveland at the heyday of some other incredibly good teams, most notably the Detroit Pistons, the Boston Celtics, and of course the Chicago Bulls. Uh, right. So uh, when you're watching those teams, are you, are, when you look back, you think about those teams, are you ever surprised that they didn't maybe get, get over the hump in one of those years and get past some of those teams, or was the road just too steep for them? Well, they came as close as the shot. Ugh. If you remember, the you know, they show it periodically. In fact, Craig Elo talks about the time, that commercial that they used yes. where Elo goes up, tries to block the shot, and Jordan gets it in over him. Well, about halfway through the season, they changed the scenario on the shot, and in the revised picture, Elo blocks the shot, and the Cavaliers win. And Elo said when he was sitting at home on the on the couch having a beer and popcorn, and he said he saw the shot get blocked. He said, he said I just popcorn and beer flew in all directions. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. He said, I thought I was in the twilight zone. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Jordan was, although the year of the shot, we had played the Bulls six times and beat them all at once, all six regular season games against the Bulls. And then in that seventh game, the playoffs, why Jordan uh, got his job done. He was a great ball player. Although yeah, people yeah. say... People say that, and I, I tend to agree with this, had they not traded Ron Harper, then the Cavs, in fact, Jordan himself said the Cavs would have been good for at least one title, if not two, with Harper on the ball club. And uh, I think he's right. But it was a decision made by ownership, and uh, unfairly so, but hey, they were the owners, so they they rule the roost when it comes to stuff like that. And, of course, we ended up with Danny Ferry, who was not going to sign with the Los Angeles Clippers under any set of circumstances. So it made a possible trade. They're going to give us their unhappy guy, and we're going to send him Ron Harper. 
and we threw in two first round draft choices because Harper at the time was being associated with guys who were less than the best in terms of their uh, involvement with the law. And although Harper was totally innocent, it was kind of built by association. And uh, so the two first round draft choices were to compensate the Clippers in case Harper ended up in jail and they didn't want to have nothing, anything to show for it. So they threw in the two first rounders, which we thought would be down at the bottom somewhere. Because <laughs> right. Year. Well, those things just never seemed to work out that way. But not in Cleveland. Not only were those great ball players, you, you, you mentioned Elo and Harper and Doherty and Price and Sanders, that whole bunch. Nance, they were great people. That was the finest group of human beings that I've ever been associated with in or out of sports because they were, they were just top-notch humans in addition to being very good basketball players. Did you ever hunt squirrel with Doherty out of the back of the arena there? Like I heard, I heard stories about that. <laughs> Doherty would hunt anything that moved out behind the uh, Coliseum. Yes, he, uh, he, I don't know, deer, rabbits, anything that would he felt was the fair game, pardon the pun, while he was out there blasting away. Oh, bone arrow, rifle, whatever. But he was the he was the hunter. Yeah, I've seen I've seen him go out there. You know, it's funny because I wonder I wonder if maybe that's not some of those players for that Cavaliers team back in that day. I think maybe aren't remembered as good as they were. Even the big names, you know, Mark Price and Brad Doherty are the big names on that team. Even they, I don't think, are remembered by the average fan to be as good as they were. Those were elite basketball players, but I, I maybe it's because they were just quiet and like good guys. And there was no, there was never like an issue surrounding anybody with the Cavs. And it's funny because as you look at players over the course of careers, it's always, you tend to remember the ones that hit the news every once in a while. No, you're absolutely right. That's, uh, that's very, very true because they were good human beings who would go home to their wives and, uh, you know, play with the kids and, uh, work hard. They, They just never got into trouble. Lenny Wilkins was a great leader for that group because he was, again, top of the top of the charts as far as I'm concerned, not only as a coach, but as a human being. So let's let's fast forward for a minute. We uh, as as we get close to ending here, uh, we can fast forward through a period of time that included Cavalier basketball, including players such as Cedric Henderson and Vitaly Potapenko and Brevin Knight and Chris Mim and such. Uh, although the one thing I do want to ask, uh, you were also, you were part of the Cavs, uh, and this is just more of a, a fun question, if nothing else. You were part of the Cavaliers that opened up Richfield Coliseum, and then obviously you were part of the Cavaliers when they opened up Gundarina in, in downtown Cleveland. Uh, so being a part of two brand new arenas, uh, what was the difference between opening up Richfield back in the day and the excitement of opening up in the Gateway Complex back in the day, uh, Gundarina? I also opened up the Cleveland Arena for basketball, too. Fair, although fair. The Cincinnati Royals had been up to play a half dozen games in the uh, old Cleveland Arena. And there was an ABA team there for one year uh, back in the oh, late 40s, something like that. But, uh, no, I saw 
the first games in all three of those venues. And obviously, things kept getting better. The, the, the old Cleveland Arena, uh, you fellas have already said you don't remember it, and no, there's no. no reason you should. You're not that old, for one thing. But uh, other teams referred to the Cleveland Arena as the Black Hole of Calcutta. <laughs> they would, they would, they would dress in the hotel across the street, the old Midtown Sheraton, which is long gone, and then they would walk in uniform across the street to the Cleveland Arena to play. And uh, at halftime, they just go down and sit at the end of the floor in the empty stand. It's because there were always empty stands in the old Cleveland Arena. Oh. And uh, yeah, that was that was the pits. Because, well, I could go on and on about how bad it was, but but just take my word for it. It was we we had uh, talk about Doherty hunting rabbits and deer out behind the Coliseum back in the days of the Cleveland Arena. Bill Fitch and the guy who ran the Zamboni, Big T, would go out after games with pistols and shoot rats. Out behind the Cleveland Arena. It was a different era. Yeah. It was a different era. On top of that, and shoot things. The Boston Garden, when they when they tore down the old Boston Garden to build the new one, they guesstimated ninety to a hundred thousand rats came running out from when they tore down that building. Oh, geez. I can't believe it because we go up the back way to get to uh, the locker rooms when the bus would stop out front. We take the stairway up to the playing area and uh, you would invariably see rats on the landings, two or three going up. <laughs> but that's the area like back then. And we've talked we've talked to some of our other guests, uh, some old hockey players about this back then. Uh, you played in gyms a lot of the time. You know that's that's yep. the best way to describe maybe the Cleveland Arena. It was a gym. It was it was an old building, the the old Boston Garden, an old building. Uh, now you watch and you see, you know, towards the end of your tenure as a play by play broadcaster, you watch that they just start putting up these. You know, they're building billion dollar arenas now. Just uh, oh, yeah. the the absolute fanciest places. The locker rooms have massage parlors and barber shops and all kinds of crazy stuff in them. You know, they just uh, they didn't have that back in the day, those old players. No, that's right. And uh, they didn't need it to play. Now I think they do. But uh, I happen to like the old Coliseum a heck of a lot more than I liked uh, whatever they're calling it these days, Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. <laughs> and, uh, because the Coliseum was fan friendly. The Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse is compartmentalized. Back in the old days, you go to the Cleveland, out to the Coliseum, and if you walk in and they had that walkway around the concourse, you could look down and see Aunt Maudie sitting down there in in row six, section five. You could just walk around, walk down, sit and talk to Aunt Maudie before a ball game. <laughs> now, you you're all compartmentalized. If you got yeah. a ticket for section seven, you better put your butt in section seven yeah. and leave it there. And don't think about going over to the other side of the building to visit with somebody because they won't let you. And uh, I just think the Coliseum was much more fan friendly. I enjoyed my years at the Coliseum a lot. And, uh, you know, I know the Joe Tate perch and all that. That, that happened. It turns out 
that's the best place in the league to broadcast a game now. Although sure. other announcers just bitched and moaned about having to sit up there where I sat. Uh, but then again, ownership started changing the buildings and moving the broadcast positions from places that were pretty good to places that were unbelievably bad. And uh, so the perch turns out in the long run to be the best place in the league to broadcast games. I don't know how much longer they're going to hold out for that up there because those are seats that I'm sure they can sell. But uh, in Boston, you work in the corner up about oh, 10 oh, rows. Oh, you, if somebody oh, shoots a ball from the far side of the fourth court uh, and he's in line with the basket, you can't see him. In fact, uh, that's where I coined my my phrase that other announcers have picked up on. You know, there was a three-pointer shot by a player to be named later. <laughs> <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't tell who it was. <laughs> You know, it's funny, you talking about different spots. You brought up two things. One, you brought up the Cincinnati Royals, which I love. Uh, you know, Oscar Robertson, Jerry Lucas. My great uncle was the head medical trainer for the Cincinnati Royals. So I got, I got pictures of Oscar Robertson and my great uncle. That's really cool. But uh, I'm going to tell you a personal story because it's one of the great sports experiences that I have ever experienced. And it was 2007. It was the Cavs playoffs, and they were in a series against New Jersey. And so right. Jason Kidd and Vince Carter and, and Richard Jefferson, and it was a good New Jersey team. And my sister lived in New York at the time, and we were up there visiting her, and she got us tickets to that game. And it was it was the closeout game. So it was game six, maybe. Uh, close. It was the Daniel Marshall game. Daniel Marshall, I think, scored more points in that game than maybe any other game of his career in Cleveland. I'm sure that's true. Yep. And the seats my sister got, myself and her friend, were directly in front of you. We were the okay. seats in front. You and Mike Snyder were back. They placed you like in the main concourse, like in the bowl. Yep. And the seats that we got were directly in front of you. So not only was I at this game in New Jersey, at speaking of a kind of a dumpy old arena, uh, this game in New Jersey, watching the Cavs win the series to move on, but I had the one and only Joe Tate just right in my ear broadcasting the game the whole time. It was, it was awesome. Well, you know, if you probably turned around, I'd recognize the back of your head. It was just, it was really cool. That's very true. All right, Joe. So, well, obviously this gets into your last stretch run of, you know, with the Cavaliers, you know, 2000, it, I have to, was it 2003 rolls around and uh, a guy by the name of LeBron James, number 23 comes strolling into the franchise and immediately, uh, 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 immediately turns things around. I mean, not that they were that bad before anyway, immediately turns things. Around. Have you ever seen a player come in with so much hype and just exceed it immediately? Like LeBron did. Probably not. Uh, and because those of us in Northeastern Ohio had seen him do his thing at uh, St. Vincent St. Mary high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was playing at a level there that was above and beyond what you normally expect to see in high school ball. And so, and I remember that first game we played in Sacramento, our first regular season game. I mean, 
the the media in attendance for that game was similar to the kind of media attendance you got for the playoffs. And uh, there were just people everywhere. And every time he touched the ball, boy, the flash bulbs would go off like crazy. And so, uh, yeah, and and hype, hype had become much more of a thing with uh, the era of LeBron James because it was that way with everything, you know, in yeah. acting and music, sports, you know, hype came real quick. And uh, of course, LeBron was certainly equal to the task and was an exciting, an exciting ball player. Now he's in Hollywood and he has <laughs> bought the legend. Oh, he is the legend. But, uh, the question I have for you is, as a guy who watched all of the first run of LeBron, uh, obviously the year that stands out, the first year was fun. Uh, then they started building. Then there was the fiasco with Carlos Boozer. That that kind of derailed them for a minute. Uh, but they get to the 2007 season. We still always it that 2007 team. It like lives in in infamy among all NBA fans because it's always the team that people point out. LeBron carried that team to the NBA Finals. Uh, so as somebody who watched every minute of that, uh, do you? Did people discredit LeBron's teammates in 2007 too much? I don't know. I can tell you this, that uh, Cavalier team could play San Antonio a hundred times and be lucky if they won a game. I mean, San Antonio was that much better. Yes. And yes. Uh, they were just that much better coaching-wise, player-wise. Uh, the Cavs got a real lesson in basketball in that four-game series. There just was no chance of the Cavaliers winning anything in that uh, series against the Spurs. Yeah, that's, that is, you know, I think, I think the Cavaliers beat the Spurs in the regular season that year, but uh, yeah, you're right. They, they split, were, they split with them in the regular season. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first game was that Cavalier, the LeBron dunk over Tim Duncan that they still play on highlights to this, to this day. Uh, okay. So just to wrap up uh, in one of the fun things we like to talk about, we've talked about Tim Alcorn a little bit. Uh, and one of the fun things we want to talk about since you've retired, again, you've, you've disconnected from a lot of the professional sports world, but you haven't necessarily disconnected uh, from the radio broadcast world uh, because you've jumped in with a radio broadcast or a radio station that we participate in. Chad and I call football games for WEOL out there in Elyria. And, uh, uh, you've been involved over at WEOL a little bit, both in uh, some high school sports and uh, and doing a weekly segment. How much fun has that been to, for you uh, to just jump in with WEOL and, and and stay connected on the broadcasting side? It's fun. It's uh, I guess you know after you've been in the business sixty one years, I think is what my tenure was. You, it's kind of hard just to walk away completely. It's easy to walk away from professional basketball because they don't play the game the same way they did 10 years ago when, when I was doing the play-by-play. And uh, it's easy to, you know, just kind of mellow out. But it's still fun to uh, do something in terms of broadcast. So the Saturday morning Medina County football scoreboard show is uh, – something I do and I enjoy it. Then I got a podcast that uh, uh, I guess they play on the air. I've never heard it, but uh, (laughs) so so it's just for fun. 
just just for enjoyment. And, and I used to sit in with Tim Elkhorn. We did softball games together. We did basketball games together. And uh, that's why I knew when he got a chance to be the Cavaliers play-by-play guy that he was step up and do a very professional job right off the get-go. And he has. Well, Mr. Tate, as as the as the uh, the host of that Medina County wrap up that you do, Chad Meyer and myself are the two preliminary guys on WEOL that do the Medina County matchup every week. <laughs> right. And so consider this an open invitation if you want to join us for a game in the 2021 season. <laughs> well, number one, I don't think I could climb the steps to get up to the broadcast booth anymore. And number two, you got to guarantee me a temperature of at least to 68 degrees before I'm going to sit and watch a football game. So end of August, early September. That's, that's an early, early game, yeah. Maybe an early Thank game you. I might be interested in. But beyond that, then the weather gets cold and the steps get further up. But yeah. that's what yeah. I would have to bow out. All right, Joe, I, I can't let you out of here before I, I, I say this one more thing. You know, I, obviously, I, you know, we talked to Tim, as we mentioned, Mike and I are, are, are good friends with Tim. Um, and of course I'm going to ask him about any stories that, <laughs> that, that I could possibly uh, mention here. And he mentioned one, he said, ask him about the time that uh, he and I were supposed to do an appearance at, at Chubby's in Illyria. And we sent a limo to pick him up. And then Tim said, you would take it from there. So what, what is this story? What is the rest of this story there, Mr. Tate? Well, that is what he has set up was absolutely correct. They actually set a limo down to pick me up and take me up to Chubby's and uh, for a personal appearance. And uh, Tim rode down in the uh, in the uh, limo, and uh, I came out. It was a cold, snowy, icy night. And when we climbed into the limo, I said to the driver, "I said, now when you're backing out the driveway, back to the right." don't back to the left or you'll put it in the ditch. Well, the young man evidently couldn't get his right and his left straightened out. And we went right into the ditch. And here you've got a limousine with the headlights shining over the barn up into the trees. And uh, so he, of course, trying to get it out while he can't get it out. And all of a sudden the door opens to the driver's side and it's my wife, Jean, and she says, come on, get out of there. I've always wanted to drive one of these things. <laughs> she yanks oh, the driver no. out of the car. She climbs in, revs it up, and boy, with ice, snow, dirt, everything, flying in all directions, she drove it right up out of the ditch. That's terrific. Of course, the, I can't remember the young man's name, uh, but when we got up to Chubby's, he was the object of great duress all evening long as we kept talking about the fact that my wife had to rescue him out of a limo in the ditch in front of our place. But, uh, that was, that was a great moment in sports. I'll guarantee you. Gene's <laughs> a superhero. He might've been the object of duress, but your wife was a hero that night. She knew what she was doing. Yep. She stepped right in and got that thing out of the ditch. May have destroyed the bottom side of that limo. I bet you there was some damage 
there because that thing was really stuck down on the ditch. But I think the bottom line was she had probably driven a tractor out of that same situation at a time or two mowing the lawn. So she had some experience in the field. And she got to fulfill that. She she got to fulfill that wish. She got to drive her limousine. Mr. Joe Tate, thank you so much for your time. It is absolutely incredibly appreciated. This has been an awesome time and uh, we wish you nothing but the best. uh, And uh, maybe one day we'll talk to you again down the line. The invitation to put your show in my direction is always there. I've enjoyed it and I wish you guys all the best. Thank you. And once again, the absolute legend, former Cleveland Cavaliers broadcaster, former Cleveland Indians broadcaster, uh, and current WEOL podcaster of a podcast he doesn't even listen to, Joe Tate, joined us for an awesome interview. Again, our thanks go out to Joe Tate uh, and to his daughter and Tim Alcorn, who really helped us uh, get that whole interview set up. So, guys, uh, that was wonderful. We're not going to beat that. Uh, an, uh, an hour-long conversation with Joe Tate. We're not going to beat that with anything. So I think all we're going to do is we're going to give you our three cheers of the week, and we're going to get out of here uh, with episode 52. So, Joey Whalen, let's send it down to you. What's your cheer of the week? Oh, boy. All right. Uh, my cheer involves the face of uh, Michael's cornhole boards, oh, no. uh, Johnny oh, Manziel. No. <laughs> it is, but it's it's cheery. <laughs> Uh, Johnny Football, as we so endearingly love him, has uh, begun playing in the fan-controlled football league. Did you guys see that? Yeah, saw that. Yeah, the old the old FCF. It's really cool if you haven't heard of it before. It's like literally like you can download an app. I'm sure you get to pay or something, but you can essentially pay to call the plays throughout the game. So there's like a certain amount of plays you can choose from. I don't know if they have a play for hold the ball for ten seconds and get sacked, but um, Johnny played his first game this weekend and they got their, I don't think they got their ass beat, but they lost. And he said, uh, he said, uh, you know, win, lose, we booze. <sighs> and, uh, so nothing's really changed, but it's nice to see him back out and Is playing, it? I guess, you know, in a non-threatening Didn't area. He run? As long as he's not, I think he ran for like 53 yards, but he was like one for 11 passing or something awful he was, like that. He was one for five for 11 <laughs> yards. Uh, ran for 67 in the touchdown on eight carries. So, I mean, it looks like a pretty uh, run heavy league. Uh, they lost 44 to 48. So I don't know how you only throw for 11 yards <laughs> and get 44 points, but uh, it must've been a big uh, defensive turn. Win or lose, they booze. And then Johnny will do other things in a bathroom after that. Yeah. Uh, Sure, there are many masks present. Yeah, for many that. masks. Oh my goodness, Johnny Football. Johnny, can Good you explain? What, can you explain why there's a rolled up five dollar bill on a sink? Shh, shh. <laughs> I've got a I've got a circular wallet. Uh, <laughs> how it stores my bills. Yeah, right. Uh, all right, I'm gonna go. Uh, uh, I will go with my good news of the week, and and here's my good news of the week: the Cavaliers' West Coast road trip is over. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> that has been so terrible. <laughs> Listen, it's one thing. It's one thing for these 10 o'clock broadcasts when the Cavs go out there and win a few games, right? When they win and it's one o'clock in the morning and you're like, cool, I stayed up. They won. They played well. It was great. Or are that at least competitive. Or are at least that didn't happen. <laughs> they were competitive. They were competitive for one quarter against the Golden State Warriors. And that was it. 
So my good news of the week Daddy. is that's over. Oh, my that's son is funny. my see my kid thinks that's funny. Patrick's down here. You want to say hi, Patrick? <laughs> say hi, garage beers. Okay, What's now go up? away. Bye, Patty. <laughs> That's Uncle Joey. That is Uncle Joey. What's and up, Patty? <laughs> okay, I got to pass it off. You wait one second, and then you can talk. Okay. All right, so that's my good news of the week. Is the, hey, hold on. Joe, just wait. <laughs> that's my good news of the week. The Cavaliers get to come back home where they have been substantially better. Uh, but we'll see what the team looks like because it sounds like some changes are coming, but we'll talk about that later. Chad Meyer, last one. What is your three cheer of the week? Uh, well, I think I'm going to give cheers, even though I am openly not a college basketball fan, but I always want to see the Ohio State Buckeyes do well. And so my shout out is to the Ohio State men's Ooh. basketball team. They have Ooh. won, they have won six in a row and eight of their last nine and have risen to number four in the country with an overall record of 17 and four. So they are playing their best basketball right now, fellas, uh, with only a couple more games left before tournament times. So, and that's exactly when you want to be playing your best. So my cheer of the week goes to the Ohio State men's basketball team. Man, they're playing really, really good basketball. Aren't yeah. they? And they're getting contributions from a lot of guys. And I don't watch all their games by any stretch. Again, I'm with you. I'm not a big college basketball fan, but they are a team. I will follow college basketball when local teams are doing well. Yeah. And they are a team that you almost have to watch. Right. Uh, they are must-watch basketball. That game they played the other night against, I think it was Indiana, it was kind of close in the first half, and then they just blew the doors off Yeah, uh, in the second half. They are truly must-watch TV. So I, I, I'm with you on that, Chad. Cheers. We had Johnny Football, and we had the <laughs> really struggling Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, kind of sarcastic cheers up front, but that's a real cheers of the week to the Ohio State basketball program. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, boys. Well, I think that's going to do it. Again, our thanks go out to Joe Tate, uh, the legend, the man, the myth, the legend himself, Joe Tate, regaling us with some stories and kind of making fun of how we look at the beginning of that interview, which was really nice of him. Uh, uh, Joe Tate, uh, uh, an awesome time and you just get the feeling we'll, we're going to have to have him on again because you get the feeling he could go on and on and on with more stories and all of his stories are good ones. Uh, So uh, what a great time that was. Uh, And again, as always, our thanks to you, those of you listening to the podcast, if you are enjoying listening to the garage beers podcast, do us a big favor, go on, give us a rating on whatever system or, or host you're listening to. Write us a review, share it with your friends uh, as we get more people listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, So thank you to you, the listeners. But for Joey down in Nashville at Garage Beers Joe, for Chad over on the east side of Garage Beers Chad, this is Michael Keefe at Garage Beers Mike. Thanks again for listening. Episode 52. Cheers, everybody. 